Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, scream. this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the you Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is October 7th, 2009. It is a Wednesday. We are rocking on with episode 292 of the Survival Podcast as we journey uh, through the uh, morning traffic together one more time with a little bit of a late start for me today, folks, so you may get the show a little bit late. It may even seem even later since um, last two days were pre-recorded shows and published about 7.30 in the morning. I bet that shocked some of you. Uh, but we're back to your regularly scheduled programming now. Um, since Monday and Tuesday were interview shows, I'm going to do my listener question show today. Really needed to do one. Might have to do another one tomorrow or Friday. Um, I was hoping Ron Hood would be on this week, but I haven't heard back from him again for a while, and I don't know if I'm going to get him on the show this week or not now. Um, but I've got such a backlog of questions at this point, uh, maybe need to crank out a couple of these types of shows. So if you haven't listened to the show long enough to know, listener questions, since I'm driving and recording, are where you send me your questions by email with the subject question for Jack in them, and then I answer them driving down the road at, well, 85, 86 miles an hour right now. I'm sure that'll slow down as I approach 360 and I-20 here in just a second. Um, but before that, we got to do our housekeeping. Our housekeeping today will start out like it always does with the mention of our sponsors and our two sponsors of the day. I uh, recommend highly that you check out first sponsor of the day, Ready Made Resources. Uh, absolutely outstanding, folks. Great stuff. They got a sale going on right now with solar panels. The price will not stay this low for long. So said the email that came to me last night. So you might want to check that out. And I will put a link uh, in the show notes today, not just to their main site, but uh, it was in that email that came to me last night. Next sponsor today, MERS-Radio.com. Again, MERS-Radio.com. Good guys, and uh, they're, they're starting to carry some uh, some inexpensive ham gear uh, in addition to the MERS gear. Uh, they don't even have the ham gear on the uh, site yet, because I went to look, but yesterday in the mail, what showed up for me was a beautiful little... Uh, little radio uh, for free just uh, as a thank you to us for uh, doing a good job for them so they're good folks and uh, the sponsor doesn't know it yet but I have something coming up very soon probably will start this weekend called the product showcase and uh, we're sponsors are going to be able to submit items for review and of course we'll uh, we'll give you a review of this one as one of them and there'll be some other opportunities for sponsorship outside of the uh, site-wide sponsorship in the product showcase because we only got one slot left I've sold out my ad inventory I guess it tells you something about about uh, the, the loyalty of this audience. Uh, I appreciate you guys uh, making it worth the sponsor's time to be here. Thank you. Uh, next, get involved with our forum. I really, really, really would love it if everybody that listens to this show would at least get on the forum once in a while. Not because I care what my member count is, although I like to see it growing up. Not that I care that it's an active forum, which I do. I want you to experience it for yourself and realize
realize that even if you've never been involved on an internet forum before, it's worth doing, and there's a lot of information there. And you don't have to post a lot. Post a hello in the welcome thread. Just say who you are and let some people welcome you, and, and you might be surprised. And just dig around and see how much information there really is that you can learn. I think you'll be shocked. Last but not least, if you think this show, the forum, and everything we do for you is worth about 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. If you joined yesterday, be alerted. Uh, you may be getting an email from me with a new password because I may have to re-establish your account for you. We had a glitch yesterday uh, which wiped out a couple people that joined yesterday. I'm going to take care of that sometime this afternoon. So if you joined yesterday and can't log in, don't worry. I'll be straightening it out for you real soon. And with that, let's walk on and get into our questions today. Uh, it was a little bit longer of an intro, but I had a few extra things I had to tell you guys there. My first question is really a cool one because it brings back a lot of memories. And uh, I, I think you guys might want to know about this because you may, any of you may, sooner or later, end up with the opportunity through surplus sales or uh, just getting lucky and coming across one, find an opportunity to buy an old military vehicle. That's what this gentleman has found. But what he's found is a 1985 Chevy Blazer with a 6.9 liter diesel in it, painted camo and listed as mil-spec. Okay? Sounds mil-spec to me. Um, if it's still got the original camo paint on it, that's probably that uh, that cart paint, and uh, it will last that long, and uh, it probably is exactly what they say it is. I, I doubt they would claim that it isn't. Uh, but I'm going to tell you some of the things to look out for with this vehicle, tell you a little bit about it, and uh, when you check these things, you'll be able to determine if it, if it is mil-spec uh, or if it was converted from mil-spec to maybe make it better for you, honestly, and I'll explain that in just a second, um, and if it's still exactly the way that it was you know, delivered to the military, um, some things you need to know. Okay, the, the weird thing about this vehicle, and this vehicle is known as a cuck V, like cuck, like, like chicken's clock, well this is cuck without the L. A Cuck V. It's actually uh, an acronym, C-U-C-V, and that is uh, uh, Commercial Utility Cargo Vehicle, I believe is, if I remember my old military and acronyms right. And I did not work in, the reason this guy asked this question is, as I mentioned before, I was a diesel mechanic when I was in the Army. I did not work on this vehicle much in the Army, but I did some. When I got to Panama, most of the uh, U.S. Armed Forces had already switched to the Humvee. This was right after Desert Storm, but Panama you know, kind of lagged behind getting new equipment, especially with all the effort that went into the war, and no one deployed from Panama there. So all the, the stateside people that were deploying to, uh, to Saudi Arabia got you know first shot at this. So we still had the Cuck Vs, and uh, we were getting the Humvees in a few at a time, and as we got them in, we had to turn the, the Cuck Vs back in. And what we had to do with them was basically make them like new. Anything that we could possibly fix had to be fixed, so I spent a lot of time messing around with them. And uh, here's some interesting things about them. One, they're the only vehicle I know of that is a 12-volt-slash-24-volt hybrid. Almost all of the stuff in the vehicle that's electronic runs on 12 volts, except for three things. The uh, the glow plugs, the uh, the starter motor, and what's called the slave cable receptacle. Now, the slave cable receptacle is the main reason that this 24-volt hybrid was created. 
Almost all the vehicles in the military are 24-volt systems. Uh, a lot of them run four batteries, two in series and two, two in parallel. And so you could take one vehicle and jumpstart another vehicle with using something called a slave cable. Every vehicle needed to have a 24-volt ignition system. So this was kind of a compromise that GM did to make this vehicle fit that spec. So the military said, well, while we're at it, we might as well take the workhorse part of it, the uh, starter motor, and run that on 24 volts. And, you know, some some idiot in the military high up in command that doesn't know anything about vehicles said, we need to have glow plugs to have 24 volts, too. So they did that. Well, here's the thing. The glow plugs are standard glow plugs. They use 12 volts. And even though 24 volts are sent to them, uh, they go through a series of resistors and knocks it down to 12. So the glow plugs are the same as any glow plug for that motor. Uh, the starter is a 24-volt starter, and because of that, if you're going to buy this vehicle, you may want to uh, get an extra starter motor if they can be found. You may want to look into that now. I don't know if that's an easy-to-get part or a hard-to-get part. I just know that I replaced a lot of starter motors in them in about six months. Now, we had like 80 of these things in my unit. So when I say a lot of starter motors, I'm talking about six. And remember, if there's anything at all, like if it making any kind of sound or anything, we did it before the vehicle was turned in. But I did probably do more starters on these than anything else, so it might be something you want to look at. The other thing you're going to want to do, as soon as you pop the hood, look and see if there's two alternators. Two 12-volt alternators pumping 12 volts to one side, 24 volts to the other side uh, by, by running series in parallel both. Um, if there's two alternators in there, that means it's mil-spec and it stayed that way. If there's one alternator in there, what that means is that it either wasn't a mil-spec vehicle or they've gone ahead and, ch- and converted it to avoid these issues. Because that most you can put a 12-volt starter in it. You just have a 24-volt power source coming to it. The glow plugs, all you have to do is remove the resistors, right? And the slave receptacle, if you're not in the military, you don't give a damn about. So they might have removed that altogether. So that's what you need to check to see how this vehicle is. Now, as far as its reliability, they were great. They were noisy. They were slow. Stiff suspension. Um, bumpy ride but a good, solid workhorse vehicle. If I ran across one and it was reasonably priced, I would buy it. And I think it makes an excellent you know, off-road slash bug-out vehicle. I think the 80s Chevy Blazers in general are pretty damn solid. When you put a 6.2 liter diesel or 6.9 liter diesel in there, uh, you take it to a new level. So I would recommend you buy it, but I would recommend you inspect the hell out of it. I would get a good diesel mechanic to go over it for you. And I would give them the information I gave you. And let, if you, if you you know, if you don't know enough about vehicles to, to determine these things so that you know yourself what you're dealing with, you know, is there a 12 or 24 volt starter in there? Are the resistors still between the electrical system and the uh, the glow plugs? Is that slave receptacle there? Uh, just out of curiosity. I don't know how much you shall have for it unless you find another one of them and you buy two of them. Uh, but those are the things to look for. So interesting question. Maybe I took a little bit of time with it. Uh, hopefully it will help other people just know about this vehicle because it is a cool vehicle. It's a part of military and American history and uh, made right here in the good old USA. All right. The next question is kind of interesting. Guy says, what do you think, if, if the government ever did seize weapons, how would they go about seizing our weapons? Would they use records of purchase? Would they seize guns that were registered? Would they search homes? How would they pull this off? Um, I'll give you a few answers because there's some important pieces of knowledge that need to be in here. Number one, records of purchase. Uh, records of purchase are destroyed 48 hours after the purchase. 
And if you buy a gun in a state that does not have its own little nonsensical gun registration already, um, all record of your purchase of that weapon is gone 48 hours after you purchase it. That's it. It, it's, it's private information at that point. So if you come to Texas, you buy yourself an 870 as a Texas state citizen, and uh, they fill out the little yellow paper on you, they check everything out, they make sure your background's clean, you buy your gun, you go home, 48 hours, the only person that knows for a fact you have that gun is the guy you bought it from and yourself and anybody you tell. So records of purchase will not work. That is why many of us fear that they are so hell-bent on establishing regular uh, registration in all 50 states via the states or at federal level, one or the other. I think they'd be happy to get either one done. Once they have registration, that privacy goes away. And you would then be required to get any gun that you already possessed and register it. So if they were to seize guns using registrations, they would put the registration in place first. This is why people resist it. And then once all the guns were registered, they'd go take away all the guns of law-abiding citizens. They would probably do it in phases. They would probably convince people, well, those nasty assault rifles have to go. And they'd come up with a list that are supposedly assault rifles. They'd seize those first. And then they'd claim, well, it didn't work. So we need to get rid of semi-automatics. And it would go in a phased you know, gun grab like that. So basically what you're finding out there is that they would take all the law-abiding citizens' guns away that were foolish enough to register. As they started to seize guns, they would probably put up, you know, a NARC web page, tell on your neighbor that owns a gun. You know, do you know how many guns? There are 20 million guns out there that are still unregistered today. Turn in your neighbor. The same way that California asked people to turn in their neighbor because they still have their old state's uh, license plate and have been in the state for more than like 28 days or whatever it is. Yeah, you say you go visit your Aunt Sue in California, folks, and uh, you're going to stay for 60 days. California requires you to get a California driver's license, California tags and pay the state their uh, extortion fee. Uh, you can't just stay there for more than I think it's 28 days. They have a web page, so that your next door neighbor's doing this. You can you can knock them out. Uh, that's probably how they would go about seizing weapons. So records of purchase, no registration, yes. And then there's always the crisis seize, like they did in New Orleans, where you say, oh, it's too dangerous. You got to take everybody's weapons, and you start searching people under martial law. That's the other way. The thing about doing it with martial law is it's going to be limited in scope and size unless we have the total shit is the fan breakdown, in which case people are probably not going to give their guns up without a fight. So those are those are the different scenarios I see playing out. This is why people are so opposed to firearms registration. Um, it's also why some of the, the people that try to appease are more along the lines of let's do it like a fire ship ownership ID card, a FOID card like they have in Illinois, which basically is I'm registered as a gun owner, but my individual guns are not registered. I don't like that either because that's not necessary for the state or the federal government to know. But that's where people make that compromise. I don't think we should make that compromise. I think we should hold the line. All right. Um, next question. A lot of gun questions today. Guy says to me, uh, a lot of shit at the fan questions today, really. Uh, guy says to me, an 870, he's got an 870 Express. He just bought a magazine extension for it. And 
and uh, he wants to buy a couple accessories. What does it say on my notes? A knock stock, which is the collapsible collapsible stock, guys, if you don't know what a knock stock is, and uh, an 18-inch barrel. He said, should I buy the accessories or should I stock up on ammunition? Uh, I'm afraid if I don't buy the accessories soon, I won't be able to get them. Uh, I'd say on the list of things that the government is looking to ban with guns, and as far back as they've been pushed by Heller versus D.C. and all the other things that are going on, you got some time to buy a knock stock and an 18-inch shotgun barrel. Even if you didn't, based on your question, I would say buy the ammo first. Now, those of you that are thinking, oh, man, you got to tack up that shotgun or whatever, Jack's going to go on his thing again about, you know, I'd rather have a sport-looking shotgun in my home if I ever had to use No, I'm going to just hear me out here. If you have a really good tactical shotgun, knock stock, 18-inch barrel, a magazine extension, everything, you know, light holder, the whole nine yards, ready to go, slicked up, and no ammunition, you have a really good-looking club. If you have uh, a sporting shotgun and a thousand rounds of ammunition, you have a sporting shotgun that makes a very good tactical shotgun with an awful lot of ammunition that you can defend yourself with. So the question was worded where I'm thinking you have a limited amount of funding that you're willing to put into this gun right now, and which comes first in priority, ammunition. Good gun, no ammo, useless, okay gun, lots of ammo, very, very useful. So the priority goes to the ammunition, and then go ahead and slick out your gun if you want to. I kind of temper the advice and bring in what James Yeager said about this when I asked him about it. You can tack out your shotgun all you want. Make sure that the accessories you're putting on there have a legitimate purpose if you want to hedge yourself back against the overzealous DA that says, hey, this guy killed this guy with this man killer gun or whatever, when the guy broke into your house. Because it has happened to people. An example would be a heat shield. If you really want one, go ahead and do it. I wouldn't personally, because it really serves no purpose. Heat shields look great, but let's face it, how, how have you ever burned your fingers on a shotgun barrel? Especially in a tactical situation. You expect to be expelling that much ammo. you got a real problem if you're at that level. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to be a bayonet. I Come on. You know, if you want one I think you should be able to have one, but for a primary defensive weapon, I wouldn't do it because it just sends the wrong message in a courtroom with some jackass DA. But for purposes just on making the decision, I'd rather have a beat-up old 870 with a crack in the stock taped together with duct tape and a thousand rounds than a really slick shotgun and five, five shells. So, priority ammunition, let's take the next question. This was an interesting question, and I don't have all of the information I might need to answer it completely accurately, but a guy emails me and says, look, um, I just listened to your show on civil unrest, and you basically said it's not if, it's when, so I'm thinking I need to prepare for total shit at the fan. Now, now hold on with that part of the question for a second. Let's dissect this. Um, I said that I think civil unrest in the United States is not if, it's when. Now, it leading to a total nationwide shit hit the fan breakdown, i.e. like the Patriots novel, I'm not saying that's not if, it's when. That could happen. It's possible. It's the eventual horrific story we all prep for in a worst case scenario. What I'm saying is, it's you know, we're going to have localized riots. We're going to have regional riots. Because we've had them before. 
And a lot of times they've happened, and if they've happened somewhere other than where you live, other than an interesting news story and your concern as a human being, you don't really care. So don't freak out because they said that. Let us go on with the question. He says, I do not own a 22, but I've been thinking if civilization does break down, ammunition might be a form of currency, and maybe I should go out and get a brick of 22s and use those as barter. Not a terrible idea. Since you don't own a 22, though, let me first state that if you live where you legally can and you are legally allowed to, I would get a gun. I don't know if it's a 22. It might be a shotgun. It's a first gun. I think is often a best defensive slash tactical slash sporting, you know, kind of multi-purpose utility weapon is a shotgun of the pump variety. There's proven reliability there that I prefer. But if you don't own a gun and you're worried about this for real, then you need a gun because going out to barter with that ammunition without a gun, that means the person you're bartering with obviously values the ammo, probably armed, takes their gun, points it at you, takes all your ammo away, and maybe leaves you with not being shot as the return. So I do believe in self-defense, so let's go take that piece, and we're done with that one. Now, 22 shells is barter. This is totally hypothetical, folks. This is where I'm going out on a limb. But it is how I see things kind of shaping up if we ever got to a point where ammunition was being used as a form of currency. If we based it on a dollar, and we might be basing it on a hundred dollars, as valuable as ammo could come, but let's just base it on a dollar. And let's say the cartridges were going to be seen like coins. Then I would see your 22 is going to be your penny. Dirt cheap, billions of them out there, last thing to be banned, uh, least lethal of commonly ca- you know, ca- carried calibers. Yes, a twenty two through the heart is deadly lethal. Yes, if you know what you're doing, you can shoot deer and kill them all day long with a twenty two long rifle. But let's face it, if I was going to be in a gunfight and I could pick, I can be armed with a thirty eight, a 9mm, or a twenty two, or a forty four. I promise you the last thing's going to be the twenty two. I promise you. You might have some other people debate the other calibers, but no one's going to pick that twenty-two for an out-and-out fight. So least valuable, it's the penny. I'd say cartridges like thirty-eight special, you know, maybe even forty-four, because they're not as common uh, as far as usage. Uh, will be kind of your dimes, right? Uh, your quarters are going to be like your 9 millimeters, your 40 Smith & Wesson. Uh, your 50 cent pieces will be your 223s, and uh, your dollars will be your 308s. Now, again, I'm being totally hypothetical here, but I'm just kind of stating it. If you ever wanted to stock on, up on ammo with the concept of using it for barter, um, I, I'm telling you, I would go with like shotgun shells, rifle rounds, or at least 9 mil with that thought in mind because it's going to have a higher value in a situation. Now, Brick of 22 is just like dirt cheap, so grabbing one or two and put them on the shelf, not a bad idea. I just don't think it's the greatest barter item. I also think that bullets may be used as barter someday, but I would prefer that you have more than one option. I would prefer that you get your hands on some pre-64 silver coins uh, because they're recognizable as U.S. currency. Most people today know what they are. I promise you, post shit hit the fan, people will figure out what they are. I would advise you to make sure you're still keeping cash on hand because it will be all but the most abysmal circumstances before cash becomes totally, completely useless in our society. Could happen someday, but not likely 
uh, in the highest probability scenarios. So stay more versatile with your barter, but if you're unarmed, by all means, arm yourself. Uh, otherwise, you're probably better off without bullets for barter. And the reason I say that is it will keep you from being in a situation where you're exclusively bartering with armed people while you're not armed. So please think about it. Now, if you're armed with something else and the 22s are an extra and, and, and money's not a big concern for you, hell, grab a couple bricks of them. Uh, you might just be able to sell them for a lot of money if we ever have another ammo shortage like we're finally coming out of. Uh, let's take the next question. Guy asks if I have any uh, suggestions for uh, growing tobacco from seed and any trusted seed sources. Well, one of the coolest companies out there as far as the amount of information that they provide and uh, you know, cool reviews and all types of, you know, everything you need to know to be able to grow tobacco, plus being a supplier of seeds, is called the Tobacco Seed Company. I'll put a link in the show notes to them today. If you check out their site, it's quite extensive. Um, I'll tell you this about growing tobacco. It's something that people overthink. Um, most of the tobacco in, in the in the smoked in this country is grown right here in this country. Virginia and the Carolinas uh, are the biggest places. But you can pretty much grow tobacco anywhere where it stays warm enough, long enough to grow tobacco. And not that long ago, uh, most Americans grew tobacco, at least a little bit of it, uh, when smoking and chewing were more popular than they really are today. I'm not a smoker, and I don't think you should smoke. And when I say that, I'm primarily talking about cigarettes. Tobacco in the form of cigarettes is extremely lethal. It really is, folks. And uh, I'm not going to lecture you on this or anything, but I want you to understand what makes it so bad. It's very dry tobacco. It's smoked with paper wrapped around it in a very narrow configuration. This causes tobacco smoked in the form of cigarettes to burn at an extremely high temperature relative to burning tobacco. That high temperature releases a massive amount of the carcinogens that are capable of being released from tobacco and if that temperature is held lower, it's not healthy, it's not good for you, but a far lower extent of those those carcinogens are released. In fact, cigarette companies in the past have done research on how to make a cigarette burn cool to make a healthier product and the only reason they quit trying to do it is because it would have been a flat-out admission of guilt that would have took the tobacco lawsuit that happened already and made it look like a joke, so they got scared and they went away from it. This is all fact. You can look it up if you want to. Uh, so I don't know a ton about growing tobacco. I smoke a cigar once every two months, maybe, and I enjoy smoking a cigar. I think growing tobacco is a good thing. I think it would be a better barter product, and it should hit the fan, um, at least short-term, than bullets. And I'll tell you, uh, mainly because... Because you're going to find more smokers jonesing for a cigarette than people that need to shoot somebody. And uh, most of the people with guns are going to have some ammo. So completely out is more likely to come in the form of cigarettes than bullets faster. As long as we're not into that, you know, Hollywood shoot 'em up scenario, which I tell you, I think is the you know the, the least probable of scenarios. So that real breakdown of society and the devaluation of the dollar, and I need something to trade. A pouch of, of cured tobacco is probably going to be worth quite a bit. So it's it's cool to do. Just don't overthink tobacco growing. Get some seeds, stick them in the ground, see what happens. Wrong time of the year for it. Can't really do it now unless you want to try it in a greenhouse, which would be cool. Uh, but it's basically a weed. It was a native weed that grew everywhere. Native Americans smoked it like crazy in their peace pipes. And uh, funny enough, 
They didn't end up with a lot of lung cancer. No additives, right? No adjuncts. Not burning real hot, smoked in a pipe, slightly moist when smoked. So if you're going to smoke tobacco, my advice to you is to take up a pipe or cigar smoking. If you're going to if you're going to grow your own, roll your own or make your own for pipes. And uh, I think you'll be better off with that. But try not to uh, put yourself into a state of addictiveness with any substance because that means that you require it. And no matter how much prepping you do, you could be without it. Now you have to deal with letting go of an addiction during a stressful time. So I would use a peaceful time like now to get over any addictions, and that's why I'm a little bit okay with the, the pipes and the, and the cigars. I, again, I smoke a cigar about once every two months. I don't jones for a cigar ever. You know, I'll end up at a nice steakhouse somewhere where cigar smoking is appropriate and, you know, meeting with someone that's also a, a cigar smoker and having a glass of wine, and it's just a man thing, and you do it, and it's kind of cool. You know, and then I have my, my wife complain about it. So I used to smoke about one every month. Uh, but i got to take like three showers before my wife can't smell it anymore. So there's some thoughts on that. But Tobacco Seed Company's cool. A lot of different varieties, a lot of information. Check out that website. I think you'll enjoy it if you're a tobacco enthusiast. And if you're a smoker, don't get bent because of what I said, you know. That's just my opinion, but there's a lot of scientific fact there. Uh, another guy asked me a question. It's going to be real easy to answer this one. Since him and his wife were talking about this and wanted my opinion on a timeshare is a bug allocation. Um, if you're talking about what I think you are, hell no. Absolutely not. That's a terrible idea. If you're talking about a timeshare, is like my father-in-law has one of these, and I, I don't even think they're a good idea to own. Um, he has a timeshare that works like this. He gets the place for two weeks a year, and as available, if he gets on a list. So he'll call in and say, hey, this is Mr. Vandermeulen. Uh, I want to know if you guys have anything available uh, in these, these time periods. And if, one, if nobody is booked, they'll call him up and say, hey, yeah, we have one. Come on down. And uh, he gets two weeks, you know, one in the summer, one in the winter, and he thinks this is great, and I think it's a terrible waste of his money. And uh, he said he wants to leave it behind to us, and I don't want it because I don't want to pay the maintenance fee that goes with it. So I don't even think they're good to own, if that's what you're talking about. It's a bug allocation. They're terrible. You're basically going to a place where, you know, 20 people lay claim to the same, 20 families lay claim to the same little condominium or what have you. Now, maybe you're talking about something totally different. Maybe you're talking about a private quote-unquote timeshare where me, you, and two of our other really good buddies all go in and pay 25% on the value of something and we timeshare it out between ourselves if you'd bug out with the other parties, it's okay. I don't think it's an ideal situation, but it'd be a hell of a lot better to have that than have nothing. It's better than a hotel. You know it's there. It's already paid for. It's already budgeted for. It would be more of a bug out location for like a regional level disaster. In other words, you live on the Texas Gulf Coast, another terrible hurricane comes in. You and some buddies have a timeshare up around, uh, you know, uh, what's that place in uh, Nashville? around Nashville, let's say Nashville, Tennessee. I was trying to think of another place. Uh, uh, God, I can't think of it now. Branson, Missouri, right? You guys like music and whatever, so you guys get a timeshare up around Branson. Well, especially if the other three don't live directly in your area, don't need to evacuate, being able to cruise up to Branson, hang out there and ride it out, that would be okay. Anything more than that, 
absolutely positively not. And then understand the limitations even with it as I just described it. But a typical timeshare, like uh, the slick uh, slick talking uh, failed used car salesman sells you because you filled out a form at the mall because you thought you were going to win a car. Uh, no, no, and hell no for a bug out location. Okay, here's another question from somebody. This, this lady asked me some of the most awesome questions. I could build shows off of the, the single questions this lady asks. And she does it a lot. And uh, I'd love to give her name, but I've never been told that's okay. So I can't, I'm not going to say this person's name on the air unless they tell me specifically that it's okay. Because I won't do that. Because uh, I know people want privacy and what have you. Um, but what she said is, as a business owner, you know, I've said before, like, let's say the flu just goes into turbo drive, overdrive, and people are dropping over dead. Back before we knew what this flu was going to be like, I said, if it gets really bad, I'll bug out. My wife's a nurse. She's not going to bring this home to the family. We're packing up and we're going. She said, as a business owner, what would you do with your employees? Would you guys be able to continue to work? Um, would you make it possible for them to bug out as well? Um, the company that I own and manage directly is relatively small. I only have a few employees. Everything that we do is uh, on the Internet and on computers. And all of them have the capability to work from home right now. I actually make it available to them on occasion to work from home. If my partner was more lenient, I'd let them all work from home a couple days a week. I really would, uh, especially the ones that have been there a while. But they're set up and ready to do that. Every once in a while, I'm like, you know, why don't you take Friday and work at home? Here's your project list. So we have already gone through that. So I've already made that uh, possible. Now, here's the other side of that, though. I don't know how much business we'll be doing if we got into a situation where I personally felt I needed to bug out. If it's regional in nature, we'll probably still be doing a lot of business. I don't think any of my employees are prepared to actually leave. They're all young guys, and none of them are really interested in this stuff, and I've kind of talked to them a little bit about it. But you know, I can't, as their boss push anything on them. It's just not morally acceptable in the workplace. So they would have the ability to at least work from home. I wouldn't expect anybody that had ever worked for me to report to work in a dangerous situation. Now I have ownership in two other companies, little small pieces, and I act as an advisor on the board and what have you. I don't get to make that decision. My advice would be the same, but I can't tell you what the other business partners would do in those situations. My business, my my people go home. My people stay safe. They work from home when they can, and uh, I'll pay them as long as the cash flow uh, makes payroll acceptable. The day cash flow is not there, I'm sorry I can't pay you, and uh, you're, you'd be laid off or let go at that point. Not because I'm evil and mean and greedy, but because I can't pay you out of my own pocket uh, maybe more than uh, – if I was a couple weeks, I would try to bridge the gap uh, with reserve cash. But if the business burns its reserve cash, that's the harsh reality. Your job's gone. And uh, that's true for anybody. I don't even like being in that position anymore, and that's part of why I'm trying to make this a full-time endeavor. Uh, It's not so I can make more money. It's so I can go live a life making a hell of a lot less money uh, by doing this, but having enough to have all the things that I really want in my life and not have the burden of having to make that decision for other people anymore. To simply be able to put this information out there and let those that choose to make the transition from grasshopper to ant do so. And those that choose not to, hey man, as a libertarian, you have the right to be stupid if you want to. And I know some people get bent when I say people are sheep or say that people that have no preps at all are stupid. Well, you are. 
if you have if you have a family and three children and you're the primary breadwinner and you don't have life insurance, you're irresponsible and stupid. And I look at having at least the most basic preparations if you're the head of your household the same way. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. I know how the hell can you call somebody stupid and not be insulting? I mean you gotta call things what they are. And you're either one of two things in that situation. You're stupid and you're stupid and irresponsible, or you're ignorant of the situation. If you're listening to me and you're paying attention to what's going on and you've you've paid attention enough to know about these things, you're not ignorant. You can't claim ignorance anymore. So you're behaving stupidly, to quote our president. (laughs) He was wrong. I think I'm right here. You are. Uh, So, you know... That that's where I'm trying to get to with this uh, this whole situation. But uh, if you do have people working for you, try to set up things where they can work from home, uh, even if they don't do it regularly. If you want them in the chair, you want to supervise them, that's fine. But having the flexibility, it's good for your business too, because you could end up with a regional disaster. Your employees may not be able to get to work, but being able to keep the base operations of the business running that should be part of your business survival plan. Maybe we'll do a show on business survival plans in the future. Another question from the same person on gardening this time says, this year she uh, put in raised beds because the soil sucks here, had a big old pile of compost delivered, dumped it into raised beds, planted plants, they died. Planted more plants, died again. Planted plants a third time, most of them made it this time, uh, but she had a lot of plants that were very bitter. Her mother said the compost was too hot. What do I think about that? Was that her problem? Your mother's right. And uh, this is a good question because it may save people a lot of grief, specifically going into gardening next year. When you have compost delivered in a big, giant pile, odds are that it came right from a composting facility, and it's still what they call hot. Now, that means different things to different people. Some people say compost is hot, where if I deliver it to you on a cold day, it actually has steam coming off it because it's still working. It's still breaking down. It's still generating heat. Now, the problem is a lot of times you'll deliver compost in a, in a big pile like that, and within a day, the heat is gone. The, 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 the warmth, it's not there anymore. It stops working. Now, the thing is, since it was hot, it was still breaking down. Now, if you mix that in at, let's say, a ratio of... Of uh, 10% or less into existing soil, not going to be much of a problem at that point. But when you fill the bed with nothing but compost and plant directly into it, and uh, she said maybe she should have done Mel's mix with the uh, peat moss and the vermiculite, you probably still would have had this problem with that compost. Maybe not quite as bad, but you would have still had this problem. Mixing in it as adjunct to existing soil, not so much. What happens in this scenario is by letting all that air in there, you stop the chemical reaction the breakdown of the compost temporarily. Now, once it's all compacted back together and you give it a little bit of time, it starts the process again. And if you dig a hole in your garden at this point, you'll find certain parts you can stick your hand in there it feels hot. Well, the ground actually gets too hot. The roots actually burn because the temperature is over 150 degrees in that process. Eventually, your plants stop dying and you think, okay, my grief is over. Well, now what the problem is is you still have a lot of concentrated nitrogen. 
that's the bitterness. Especially some of the things you were saying, like cucumbers and greens, they were very, very bitter. And what happens is that nitrogen's there, all of a sudden they take off, they grow like crazy. They just go nuts, they grow so fast. Uh, and they're sucking nitrogen up, but they kind of pig out on the nitrogen, and uh, you'll get some bitterness. So that's the source of that problem. So how do you solve this problem? Um, if you get hot compost delivered, let it sit for in a big pile, not spread out, in a big pile for... For at least two to three weeks, and uh, dig a hole to the center of it, stick your hand in there, and when it stops getting warm, it's done working. Two, uh, if you're going to use pure compost, that's the only thing you can do, but otherwise, mix your compost with a lot of existing subsoil. Don't let it group up in place so that it kind of spreads this nitrification process out, and you'll do a lot better. Now, here's the good news. Um, by now, if you plant, and this person I know lives in this area, so you got a lot of winter gardening ahead of you. By now, you should be able to plant anything you want in there, and it should do beautifully. And next spring, just turn the soil a little bit with your trowel when you plant, and your spring garden next year should be absolutely amazing because you have pure organic matter there. And uh, let me warn you, though. Depending on the source of your compost, you may be deficient in certain nutrients. So if any of your plants in the spring or even the fall don't seem to thrive, don't be afraid of nitrogen now. Don't be afraid to go out and get some. Uh, one of the best fertilizers for this is a miracle Grow, the organic miracle Grow, um, and use that. If you have any peppers or anything right now that have, have yellowish leaves, they just don't seem to be doing very well, get some of that miracle Grow stuff and uh, shoot them up with it. Uh, you may just have, like, what will happen is when the compost compost is still working and it's all one source, uh, it goes through cycles. At, some, at certain points the nitrogen gets locked up and then released and then locked up again and then released before it's finally completely available. So be prepared to do some supplemental feeding in there. And if you get a little bitterness, you get a little bitterness. It's better to have a bit, little bit of bitter lettuce uh, than have nothing. But I think this fall now you should do great. And, and again, don't be afraid to use a little bit of supplemental fertilizer. Uh, but complex question, complex answer, but... Uh, Good one for people to learn a lot from. Another guy who uh, I answered a question for before, uh, was pretty grateful for the answer and uh, hopefully gave some good direction. Uh, part of the advice involved looking elsewhere, and that included looking here. He's moving here. Wants to know if I will allow him to buy me a beer. Absolutely. And let me tell you this. Anybody that's ever in the DFW area wants to get together and have a beer with me, you don't even have to buy. I'll buy. I'm happy to meet any member of this audience anytime that I logistically can get that done. So that's an open invitation to anybody. Um, the next question, though, he had is a little more practical of a question than drinking a beer with me, and that was, you know, he's moving here from Michigan. I guess he started to get his concealed carry permit, but didn't do it yet. But he took the, the, the required training course, and uh, Texas says you can get your concealed carry permit anytime within two years of that course before you have to retake it. But will his course from Michigan be good here? I think, but not cannot confirm that the answer is yes. Somebody who may know the answer definitively, if you do, please comment in the blog today at the survivalpodcast.com in the show notes from today's show. Let us know that. I believe so. I will tell you this. Michigan and Texas are reciprocity states in regard to concealed carry. 
So, what you may want to do is go ahead and eat the expense, get your concealed carry permit in Michigan, and when you come to Texas, you will have a valid method of carry. And then you can ask Texas, you know, what do you do to get a Texas permit? Whether you have to take another course and go through the whole process again, or they'll just acknowledge the, the Michigan validity and allow you to get one, or, you know, you have to do another background check. I'm not sure what that is. I don't really know what you're going to have to contend with there, uh, but it may behoove you to do that. Now, let me tell you the other side of this. This is another thing I didn't have time to find out for you today. Uh, if, it, if it works this way in Texas, I don't believe it does, but it does work in Arkansas, and I have to plan for this myself. If I move to Arkansas, the day I declare my residency in Arkansas, even though Arkansas is a reciprocity state, even though I can go right there now with a Texas concealed carry license and carry in Arkansas, um, when I become an Arkansas citizen, my existing permit becomes null and void and invalid that day. And I have to be a citizen for six months before I can apply again. So I have to take that into consideration for my Arkansas move. And I have to think about how that affects me. And there's various ways that I can handle that. I haven't made a definitive decision about what I'm going to do with that yet. But I've actually kicked around the idea of making my primary residence stay here in Texas, getting ourselves a little RV lot or something so my wife has a place to come uh, visit the folks, keep a P.O. box here, and uh, consider myself living on extended vacation in Arkansas. Since Arkansas doesn't have the rat out your neighbors without state tags the way that freaking California does, and since I've owned that place as a vacation home for that long, I could probably make that fly. I'd prefer once we move to go ahead and become an Arkansas resident. I just have to decide whether I'm willing to walk around unarmed for six months in that scenario. Um, with where I live and the things that I'll be doing for the first six months, I may just have to grin and bear that one. Uh, but it's really a stupid law. It doesn't make any sense. And I'd like to know the rationale that Arkansas has for that restriction. Uh, it just it just doesn't make sense to me. All right. Um, this guy also asked me one more question I'm going to wrap up today. I found this one kind of comical. He says, hey, I keep hearing these stories that you guys in Texas drive around in pickup trucks with gun racks with rifles and shotguns clearly visible all the time. Uh, i got to tell you, I've never seen that in Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't think I've ever seen a truck with an occupied gun rack in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'll tell you why. Sooner or later, you got to go into your store or place of business, wherever you're going. The person would be afraid that the weapon would be stolen. So that is a myth. Sort of. I've been on plenty of uh, trips out in West Texas during dove season or deer season and seen hunters driving around with guns visible and gun racks in the back of their truck. Plenty of times. So, but I, I don't find that Texas unique. Um, I've never been to Michigan. It's one of the few places I've never been. Uh, but I would think upstate Michigan where you guys deer hunt, people probably do that all the time. I know growing up in Pennsylvania, just about everybody with a pickup truck had a gun rack. And if you were actually out hunting or going target shooting or anything where the gun was going to be in your possession, throwing that gun in the gun rack was just no big deal. Uh, that said, even then, I, if I went down to Philadelphia, I never saw somebody driving around downtown Philadelphia, you know, or downtown Pittsburgh uh, with a gun rack. 
or you know going over into New Jersey into some of the big cities there. So I don't know really where that myth comes from, other than maybe people that are from very urban areas they, and they have visited Texas in a very uh, rural area and have witnessed the behavior in that rural area and just assumed that that's the way that Texas is. And there's this big myth in Texas that everybody has a gun. And I'll tell you what, it was you know not that long ago you could get a concealed carry permit in Pennsylvania and you couldn't get one in Texas. That's where that poor lady's uh, mother and father were killed in this Luby's cafeteria down here because we could own guns in Texas, but before Governor Bush signed the concealed carry legislation, you couldn't concealed carry in the state of Texas. So if you went into a place like a restaurant, even if you were armed in your vehicle, you had to disarm, and that's exactly why I can't remember her name. I'm sure I'm going to get a million comments today about what her name is, but uh, that's what this lady that testified before Congress said. Because of you, I was unarmed and I couldn't take care, even though my gun was in my truck and my parents died that day. So, it's a myth, and, you know, I, again, I don't know the source of it, but understand that this, this concept of Texas is where everybody is armed, and, like, it's a big deal that we have a concealed carry permit. There's a little bit of mythology there as well, and I think it's because Texas has this, this reputation, you know, the Lone Star State and Cowboys and, and what have you. The reality is... But Texas is a state just like most other states. And uh, we're not the freest state in the Union. We've done some pretty stupid things to ourselves down here as well. But it's a pretty good place to live. Uh, I put it in the top ten states to live in in the United States for quality of life, the economy, uh, overall freedom, you name it. Uh, probably the freest state in our country right now, folks. Um, in all walks of life is New Hampshire. It's expensive to live there, damn cold in the winter, but they seem to keep their government in check. And I'm, I'm uh, proud of them for that. I'm hoping some other states will maybe, uh, maybe take their lead and follow their example. And I know I have a lot of listeners that are part of the Free State Project, so there's a little mention for you guys today. And with that, I'm going to wrap up. Thanks for all the great questions today. And folks, remember that um, each situation that comes in your life is an opportunity to learn. You have the ability to, to figure out how to get get by any situation that comes your way. If you do that on a daily basis, you'll be prepared for disaster because you'll train yourself how to think. What we do day-to-day to prepare, storing food, having evacuation plans, all the things that we talk about, homestead living, self-sufficient living, small livestock, all of this stuff, pales in comparison to having a well-trained and well-educated mind. Focus on your knowledge. The knowledge is the thing that will get you by when you end up in a situation where you don't have access to those or they've exhausted themselves. That's the one thing you'll never run out of is a clear, concise set of knowledges, uh, knowledge and skills. So keep working on that, and that's a great way to keep on living that better life. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. Get spent 